0: Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Cara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying. In today's episode, friend of the podcast, Abby Norman, and I got together to debrief about the Endometriosis Foundation of America conference we attended. We actually didn't wind up talking about it much, sorry, but we did cover some of it, what patients really need until there's more consensus on how to treat the condition, medical debt, menstrual stigma bleeding on things, personal care, and living with chronic fatigue. You can hear Abby talk about her own personal experience with endometriosis in episode 16. In that episode, we talked about how difficult it can be to get diagnosed with endometriosis, having others value her fertility and the satisfaction of her male sexual partners above her own health and quality of life, and the book deal she recently signed to write about it all. Since we recorded that episode, Abby has launched a medium publication called Ask Me About My Uterus that includes essays, interviews, and research about women's health, menstruation, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, menopause, miscarriage, identity, infertility, and more. Like all menstrual health issues, endometriosis does not only affect women, but can affect anyone with a uterus or who used to have a uterus and maybe doesn't anymore, whether they identify as a woman or not. We're in the habit of talking about it as a quote-unquote women's health issue because it's an estrogen-dependent disease that involves the uterus. But as we've talked about before on the show, this is something that does not only affect women. I apologize for not having used more inclusive language in this conversation, it's a habit that I'm still working on changing. We talk about certain grooming habits in this episode, things like shaving our legs or wearing makeup, but we didn't get into how those things are perceived by the world around us, which can be tricky business for the chronically ill, especially for those with invisible illnesses. We already battle against so much disbelief and distrust when living with invisible illness and our choices to wear makeup or not is often policed by others who believe if we're wearing makeup, we can't really be that sick. This is, of course, garbage talk and it's complicated. And like I said, we didn't get into that aspect of it. I just wanted to point out that those decisions are personal and looking good does not always equal feeling good. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that. As always, I've included links to learn more about some of the stuff we talk about in this episode in the show notes. Find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. Oh, And one more thing. Um, I was recently selected as a Clue Ambassador for Menstrual and Reproductive Health, which is exciting, although I don't quite know what it really means yet. Um, Clue is actually a menstrual cycle tracking app that you can get for your smartphone where you can not only track your cycles, but also Um, symptoms, and other stuff that can give you insight into what things might be related to your menstrual cycle and see if you can find any patterns. Um, Tracking my cycle with an earlier app uh, before Clue was a thing is directly responsible for finally getting diagnosed with premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Without that data, I probably would never know that there was a connection there. Um, So I am a big fan of tracking your cycle and paying attention to your body and getting to know your body so that if something starts to go wrong, you'll know. Because <laughs> it's surprisingly easy to just ignore something that might actually be an issue like we talk about in this episode. The other thing that is really cool about Clue is that they are using the data that is collected through the app. And I have complicated feelings about data collection, but in in this application, I think it's actually really exciting and important. They're using actual data to further menstrual health research, which is super important and super far behind because it never has gotten the funding or the resources that it needs. So I am really excited about research opportunities uh, that patients have and people have to participate in learning more about how our bodies are supposed to work and what happens when they don't work that way. Um, So check out Clue. There are plenty of other menstrual tracking apps that I'm sure are also really great. This just happens to be the one that I use um, and know more about and am now somehow affiliated with maybe, I don't know. Um, There's also plenty of other opportunities to get involved with research Uh, to further endometriosis and menstrual health. Endometriosis-wise, I actually just got off the phone with uh, the patient coordinator for the ROSE study who is collecting menstrual effluent. So uh, they're actually using diva cups to capture your your period and are studying genetic factors and, and just trying to figure out what the hell is going on with endometriosis? If there's a genetic link, if so, maybe what is that? Um, so that they can maybe actually develop a test to diagnose endometriosis without exploratory surgery, because wouldn't that be great? Um, and also to see if they can develop, you know, a medication that might help to directly treat the issue instead of just trying to mess with your hormones to make it a little bit less terrible or surgery. So I have linked to Clue's website in the show notes. I have linked to uh, research opportunities through the Endometriosis Foundation, uh, including the ROSE study, which I'm super excited about. And uh, yeah, I really, I encourage people, you know, whether it's endometriosis or menstrual health in general, whatever condition you might have, we don't know enough about anything. So if you can try and participate in research, it's not always like a drug trial, which I know can be scary, uh, or, you know, potentially really exciting. Um, Sometimes it's just collecting information so that we know what the hell is going on. I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: just any number of medical topics or healthcare topics, that that is the number one reason that people file bankruptcy in Mm -hmm. this country.
0: However, there have been changes made to how your credit score is calculated that don't factor in medical debt anymore.
1: Oh.
0: I don't know. That's what I read. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean... All of my medical debt is now on credit cards. But yeah, anyway, I was going to so... say,
1: that's what happened to me, is that everything got rolled over onto this onto this credit card because I was trying to keep things from going to collections. Right. So then it becomes credit card debt, even though the source of it was medical treatment.
0: There's about $450 that I owe for an MRI that I had at the beginning of the year. I was still on my old insurance because... Oh, God, it's so complicated. Anyway, uh, I... My old insurance ended on, like, February 15th, so um, the first month and a half, I, like, totally hit my deductible, but it doesn't matter because now I'm not on that insurance. But I hit my deductible on, like, January 3rd because I was getting a pelvic MRI simply because reasons maybe this will show something you know like maybe maybe they'll find something on this pelvic mri that will give me more clarity about my pelvic pain of mysterious origin without me having to get cut open that would be cool which
1: would be great yeah
0: um so i had to pay 500 dollars on the day i had the mri and i thought like that seems like a lot but a reasonable amount for an mri and for it to get read but then I got a bill in the mail that's like, oh, the difference is $450 that you owe.
1: Right. And you're like, well, now what do I do?
0: Yeah. Well, now what I'm doing is ignoring it. And
1: they haven't sent a second one, so.
0: So you're just like, I'm just going to. I'm just going to. I'm just kind of counting on the inefficiency of the American healthcare system and billing for it to just fall through the cracks. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a very good chance that they'll just write it off or it will disappear or whatever.
1: Yeah, actually when I worked in, um, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say this, but when I worked at a hospital, um, I, so I was employed by a hospital that I had been getting treated in and was still on occasion being treated there. And at one point I went to the like billing department and was like, can you, you know, how do I, like, how do I start approaching this debt that I owe this hospital when I'm on the payroll? And they actually had a program for employees that they could have some of it taken out of every paycheck, like before whatever. And then, so I did that, but then they were like, they like, we're looking back at the length of time that mm-hmm. I've been treated there and all the things and like just the multiple like comorbid conditions. And they actually did write some of it off. Nice. And that was really nice. And I think that the other thing, too, that I wish I'd known about, and this is something that, like, at 19 when I was uninsured and I was, like, petrified and didn't really have any advocacy experience and didn't have anybody to advocate for me when I was in the hospital, is that a lot of places do have, um, like, charity programs. And they do have ways to try to offset some of that. But they don't really go about – like, they don't make a point of telling people. So, I mean, you have to be very, like – and it's very, it's a kind of a humbling experience. I mean, on some level I think you you wanna feel like you can take care of your family, you could take care of yourself, that you shouldn't have to like you know, ask for handouts for things. But the reality is is that like everything is so in terms of cost, um I mean so like blown up to 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 be able to have hospitals remain operational or to make it well yeah that's how they really that's enough. how they manage
0: to write off so much is because they they or or like wind like they just inflate the costs knowing that some some things aren't going to get paid or they're, that some insurance companies are going to negotiate it down... To, to you know,
1: practically nothing. Practically
0: nothing. And so we'll just charge everyone else this super inflated cost because their insurance company might actually pay it, so...
1: Yeah, and the other thing I always tell people, there's... It, it, there's an, like one of the best things that you can do for yourself whenever you receive a bill from a healthcare system is to get an explanation of benefits, to request one. If you aren't supplied, sometimes they just call them an EOB, but it's an explanation of benefits. If you don't get one up front, demand one because you have the right to have one. And I have done that several times. Um, even when I got something that didn't necessarily seem suspiciously high, but I just wanted to make sure to, and saw that things were double billed Mm -hmm. or that things were billed that I like services that I'd never received. And I mean, I used to work in medical records, so I know like People screw up, humans screw up, and computers screw up all the time. And so, oh, so many much. so many hospitals right now are moving to, like, trying to combine electronic medical records with whatever their current technology is. There's not a lot of standardization in that. Mm-hmm. And so people, I mean, the mistakes are, like, prolific, <laughs> right. you yeah. know. So you need to be able to, to actually look at that breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to, to then go back and say, you know, I didn't have this procedure, you can't charge me for it. Or I didn't have this twice, you know, you've billed it on the same code.
0: Or I was in the hospital and literally never saw this doctor.
1: Yeah, that too. Absolutely. And I think, and I sometimes tell that to people and they like don't have any idea that they should have ever received that Mm -hmm. paperwork. Like you get your bill and that's, and you think that's like the end of the line. But if they haven't sent that explanation of benefits with it or that didn't precede the bill, um you have every right to have one. So I think that that's like... And I wish somebody had told me that sooner. I only figured it out when I was working in the department that was, like, shoveling them out, you know? So it was like, I... I would, that wouldn't have occurred to me. Because obviously, you know, it's not like they're... I don't think they're necessarily trying to be dishonest. Maybe they are, but if... Yeah.
0: No, there's too much incompetence. Yeah. Like, there's just... I, as, as a person who, like, made something of a career in, like, the minutiae of data, like, there's... Just, it's just everything just doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It, it that's what it comes down. I'm sure that in some cases like certain doctors or whatever are doing like mal- malicious billing practices, but the vast majority of billing errors just come down to incompetence and like just shit doesn't work the way it's supposed to.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of um a lot of hospitals, like the vast majority are they're struggling under the weight of having to incorporate this technology, which is becoming um, – and they've been, like, threatening that it's going to become the requirement for, like, five years. I know. They've
0: had <laughs> plenty of time.
1: Yeah. You know, they need to, like, integrate that. And, and then what happens, or at least I think in in, like, some of the places where I worked, it was just a matter of, you know – people being super resistant to change and physicians are like notorious for that Mm -hmm. because they get taught. I mean, you think about like somebody starting their medical school career and being educated, but not really becoming like an independent practitioner for like 25 years after they've been in school for like 10 years. So by the time they are integrated into a healthcare system or they've got a private practice, the world has moved on from what they were taught, but they're so resistant to incorporate new Practices into what they know, and that's a huge issue. for Yeah,
0: businesses. and we're we're just talking about billing, but this is also <laughs> true of like actual medical conditions and stuff.
1: Yeah, which, which we know because of this whole. You know, we were we were at this conference, and and you know, sort of that's a good that's a nice segue. A nice segue. <laughs> Thank you. You know, like to to talk about just the sort of the disconnect between, and not even I don't even think it's like a, a disconnect necessarily between well. It, it does exist between clinicians and patients. But even clinicians of one generation to, to clinicians that are being trained now. And mm-hmm. the, I think the propensity of them to want to, for people who are experts in their field, to want to pass on what they've pioneered and what they've learned to the next generation of physicians, even if it's technically kind of outdated. Mm-hmm. You know, So there are some things that I'm sure, some techniques that kind of transcend time and are just so good that they work you know, consistently and that they're, they're ultimately going to provide better patient outcomes. But I think there's also some, um, you know, there's some ego in it. <laughs> Maybe there's a lot of ego in it. Hmm. Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> so much ego. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we, I think we kind of saw now we, you were at patient day, which was the first day of this conference. And shout out for the free tote bags, which I use today. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, my mine's in my, packed up in my suitcase, but I'm definitely going to make use of that. Um, and this, actually, I mean, all in all, I, you know, I started out at patient day and I spoke. Um, but then I was at the conference the next two days. And actually, it was really fascinating to me because I went into it. Um, I mean, obviously, as somebody who's researching a book on the topic of endometriosis to 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 an extent, um, I went in with a lot of questions. I actually came out with more questions than answers, and a lot of that is because I hadn't realized uh, either as a position, uh, uh, as a patient, or as a researcher, the extent that there is um, a lack of consensus on this on this illness. But I think that's the more I think about it, I don't think that's unique to endometriosis.
0: It's definitely not unique to endometriosis. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think if you think about you know, any number of, of, uh, chronic conditions, chronic pain conditions, or even just like women's health in general. Um, one of the things that was so interesting to me about this conference right from the beginning, um, especially on that first day was that the, the vast majority of, of experts of surgical experts of, um, sort of like academic experts were, male and i mean i understand the idea that that you can claim expertise in something that you have like zero experience with well i I mean like you know i can see where they're coming from in terms of saying i've been like i've been using the surgical technique for 30 years i've pioneered and perfected it like that's fine like you get to say you in that in that technique sure you're an expert are you an are you an expert in endometriosis if you are male and have never experienced it I just... That doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I don't... I, I And I was really a little bit... I was a little uncomfortable with it, with the assertion that that's... Yeah, and I, I have to say that as far as the, the patient
0: day went, uh, the talks that I found most interesting and that resonated the, the most with me were from the people who actually experienced endometriosis. Like, there was uh, a woman... Uh, who was it that gave that great talk about painful sex?
1: Oh my gosh! Oh, I'm going to blank on her name. Um, we'll li- we'll do some we'll do some linking yeah. with this podcast. Yeah, we'll link sure. to people. I can go back in my notes. Um, but yeah, I know that was a perfect like example of you know, in a way you would think it would be like preaching to the choir because so many people in that room already knew. But there's something about that sense of validation, especially on the topic of painful sex. Um, And there was actually, and we talked about this earlier, um, within the medical professionals who were there, there was a certain, like, disregarding of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think probably comes from the fact that, you know, a lot of them feel that they are able to cure this condition. And I think that if your your definition of, of something being cured is to just remove the disease that you phys- that you see, um, if that's your definition, that's not a broad enough definition because if, if the quality of life doesn't improve, if the pain doesn't improve, which we know that it doesn't always, um, and I would, I would wager that more often than not, even with these really, really skilled excision procedures, that there are still, um, you know, quality of life challenges for these women to, to, regardless of whether or not they still have those specific lesions, um, You know, like, that that's not a broad enough definition of of cured. Well, I mean, there's... I I have a hard
0: time with the word cure in general across the board. Um, Our entire medical system and culture is so focused on finding cures for things that maybe aren't ever going to be curable. Um, And I think a lot of times uh, there's a lot of energy and a lot of resources that are dedicated to finding a cure for things that... Like, maybe we should be focusing first. I mean, finding a cure eventually, great. Sure, why not, if we can. But, like, in the meantime, why can't we devote resources to improving quality of life for patients, regardless of whether they are cured or not?
1: Yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean, I think about how, uh, and especially being at the the following two days of this conference, which were uh, both devoted to, like, medical professionals, researchers, surgeons, you know, presenting their work and talking about where that fits in. I was thinking about how long it takes to even get to these like places in in terms of the research and it's like, okay, it's great that you're doing this. I as a patient and as an academic are very excited that this work is being done, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't actually like impact the the quality of my life right now. And I think that there needs to be um a corresponding avenue of research that's looking solely at, first of all, finding ways to better diagnose this, but also to, to provide treatment and management in the interim. Because some of these, you know, some of this research that's only really beginning now is not going to be complete or, or, or have anything of, um, you know, significant use for probably Decades, decades. And then to be
0: able to filter down to actual practitioners and not just these very highly specialized experts, you know, most of us, even even though I live in the New York City area, I can't go see those doctors because they don't take my insurance or, you know, there's like so many different factors, a lot of which just has to do with location and And, and somebody at some point in the, during the patient day said that insurance wasn't really a barrier, a barrier to treatment. And I was like, um, I know a lot of people that would disagree with that myself included, because, you know, I, I would love to see any of these experts and if any of them hear this and you want to take me on as a pro bono case, I am here for it. But (laughs)
1: like,
0: you know, it's just, it's not really an option for me or for most other women especially low-income women mm-hmm. or women who are in narrow, in narrow insurance networks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the disparity in access is a huge problem in general right. in the American healthcare system. I think when you add on to that um, being female or being uh, in a minority group or any group that is... And it can come in layers. Like, absolutely.
0: <laughs> first strike... You have a uterus. Second strike, you're a person of color. Like it just it it layers on, and it really just only gets worse from there.
1: Yeah, actually, one of the things I was I was thinking about, and I was talking to Rebecca about this. Um, We're in her apartment right now. <laughs> She's here, so Thank I, I you wanted for the yeah, shout out to to her. Um, was that I think that you know over the last thirty years or so, when when people talk about endometriosis anecdotally or they talk about it in research they very consistently say oh it's like the the like white middle class women's like working women's disease and i think that is patently false i do not believe that endometriosis occurs more frequently in caucasian women i think it's just that because they have a certain like and not all the time but you know they have a certain economic privilege they have a social privilege to be able to be you know, to have access to a doctor's office, to have access to a doctor who's going to then listen to them and take their experience um, at face value and try to, to to make, like, you know, a diagnosis or to try to treat them in some way. I, or And also, like, a, the, the language barrier. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for, so for them to, like, categorize this as predominantly, like, a white woman disease, I'm like, that is that is absolutely doing more harm than good. Yeah. I, I feel like that is absolutely absolutely false. Um, and I think that one of the things that we have to 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 think about in terms of creating um you know, a better system for diagnosing and treating this is also uh the education which which actually the the Endometriosis Foundation has started a program, the Empower program where they go into um schools in the city and they and it's co-ed, it's a co-ed education. Why why, why aren't more
0: of these programs go ahead? I mean, like we, in fifth grade, we were separated out into different gender groups and I, I don't know what the boys learned, but they definitely did not learn about periods or anything around that.
1: Yeah. I actually, I, I have an anecdote about this in my book, um, where I reflect on that fifth grade segregated sexual education where, We came out to recess after that had happened, and I will never forget this because it was such a fundamental, like, formative um, moment for me as being female and understanding what it was going to mean for me to be female. They had been you know, r- like, raucously entertained. They had, they were running around the playground being like, you know, sex is great. Sex is going to be so great. It's great. It's great. And we, the, the, the girls, like, sitting on the grassy knoll, watching them play kickball, had not been given that message at all. And it was such a stark, like, moment where we were watching them be so excited and empowered about sexuality. And they had had this, like, massive information dump where they suddenly were like, oh man, sex is going to be so cool. And like, meanwhile, we would have been told like, oh yeah, like your periods are going to suck. And then when you lose your virginity, it's going to hurt. And then you're going to have babies and that's going to hurt. And like, we were all so disenchanted. But I was thinking, you know, one of the big themes for me in terms of having these conversations in any setting, whether it be like on my blog or whatever, is trying to stop this normalization of female pain. Like the cultural normalization that all of this shit is going to hurt. Because first of all, it doesn't have to. And second of all, a lot of times when it does to the point where it's debilitating, it is definitely a sign of something being wrong. Um, But because from that very young age, like 9, 10, 11, we're already socializing girls to expect pain, That, I mean, like, what a disservice. Yeah.
0: I mean, for me personally, I was already in pain by that time. I was already in pain. Um, My headaches started when I was about seven years old. And so did my weird foot pain that was completely inexplicable. Like I had this very specific heel pain that I had imaged from here to Sunday. And they were like, oh, oh, it must, since we can't find anything, you must be making it up or you must be manifesting this as some sort of psychological thing. And the same thing happened with the headaches. Um, I went to pediatric neurologists and, you know, had all sorts of things tested um, that, and then was just told that like, this is something that you're 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 making it happen first of all. And second of all, there's nothing we can do for you and you're just going to have to live with this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I mean, that was certainly like my my experience started a lot well, you know, I want to say it started a lot later because it became so acute mm-hmm. during that, you know, that fateful, you know, day my sophomore year of college when everything would like literally went to hell. Um and this whole sort of part of my life started, but when I actually look back at it and I reflect on what my life was like once I started my period, I kind of start to realize how much was like really abnormal and unpleasant, but I didn't, I didn't know that it was. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, um, you know, and I'm always very, like very, very vocal about my menstrual history. I mean, obviously the whole ask me about my uterus (laughs) thing has been like, let's all talk about our, our periods in really great detail. Um, you know, I started on Thanksgiving when I was 12 and a half um, and had not really been prepared for it. But the the thing that troubled me about that was that I felt so sick. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even really, the like, the blood didn't really phase me. I mean, I was always one of those kids that, um, like, would run around outside and get, like, you know, get hurt and be like, cool, look at my scab. Like, you know, I was so, like, I was always very like, fine with, with quote-unquote, gross boy stuff, which is a whole other characterization of childhood. But, you know, so this happened to me, and really what it was for me was that the, the nausea and, you know, the bowel symptoms, which would often, like, wake me up in the middle of the night. Um, and, you know, they talk a lot about, like, dyskizia, so, like, painful bowel movements with your period. And that's something that people don't talk about. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I would wager that more women have that and don't recognize that it could be... Related. Related, yeah. And actually, uh, one of the talks at the patient day, i f- I
0: forget which one it was, but somebody said that, you know, according to studies that they have done, teenage girls are more... It's easier for them to talk about... Uh, substance abuse than it is for them to talk about um, GI symptoms associated with their period. And it's also easier for them to negotiate condom use with a partner than it is for them to talk about GI symptoms with their period, which I found really interesting
1: because I don't know why. But I found it
0: interesting. No, I'm... I, my brain just...
1: Yeah, out. I mean, I know you guys, like anybody who's listening can't see the look of like recognition on my face right now. Mm-hmm. But that actually really is reflective of, of my experience being, being a, a like menstruating teenage girl because there I wanted to have those conversations. Um, and also I was in a situation where I couldn't ask my mom. I didn't have like older women in my life that I could ask. Uh, my friends really weren't into talking about it. And I feel like almost maybe the reason that I'm so vocal about it now, even outside of the endometriosis, but just being so vocal about it with, like, the young women in my life is that I'm trying to overcompensate for all the years of being so ignorant to my own experience. But also, like, I mean, and I'll just say it, like, just so that we can all have a platform to then, you know, come out and talk about it. From day one, from the first period I ever had, um, I mean, basically... I always know, like, the night before I was going to start bleeding because I would be woken up at, like, one thirty in the morning with just absolutely... And not even just diarrhea that's, like, annoying and, like, wakes you up, but, yeah, but painful, painful. Like, on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Painful. Exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would persist. And I would usually bleed for, like, seven days, and it would be just a regular part of it for me. But it was very painful. And, I mean, I don't think... I mean, I think a lot of women, um, for lots, and not just women, I mean, everybody experiences like for some reason, either you get like super constipated or you got hemorrhoids, like whatever. Like, you know what it feels like to have a painful bowel movement. But I think when it's associated with period pain, because you also have pelvic pain, you might have lower back pain, um, you may not necessarily recognize what it is until it gets to the point where it's like a stabbing rectal pain. And I don't think people, ever feel like they want to talk about that. Like, how do you bring it up? No
0: one wants to talk about the rectums in general.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, let's just like, let's just, let's just be real here. Like, you know, if you, if you have that or if you have like rectal bleeding or, you know, any sign of these things, like there's some shit that's wrong. Like (laughs) for lack of a better phrase, like your butthole in general, not supposed to bleed. Yeah. So I mean like these are all things that, um, it makes me think of how like perfect example. Okay. Ovarian cancer symptoms. So many women go, they, be, they get into advanced disease because they've normalized all of the symptoms that we know of mm-hmm. that preclude um, an ovarian cancer diagnosis. And, and it is oftentimes stuff like that. And yeah. they just chalk it up to stress. They chalk it up to, you know, the thing too is that with especially, you know, period discomfort or symptoms surrounding one's, you know, hormonal changes. I feel like almost all the women I've talked to, myself included if I could go back and talk to myself at 15. Um the first assumption is, "Oh, I'm weak. There's something wrong with me because I feel this bad." I'm, you know, cuz clearly you recognize I'm not supposed to feel this bad, mm-hmm. but instead of saying maybe there's something physically wrong that's causing this, like the first line of defense seems to be, "There's something wrong with me." Like and it's my fault. Yeah, and it's my fault. And like all like every other woman experiences this, but they don't but it doesn't like keep them on the couch for three days mm-hmm. or they don't have to miss work. So there's some there's an inherent weakness in me that means that this is what it's like for me. And I feel like the first thing we need to do is to shift that paradigm yeah. in a major way. And I mean I don't I don't know how to do it, but I mean I think at least acknowledging it and talking about it is probably the first step. And I just feel like whenever I talk to young women um, who are in their, you know, like teen years, and you know, I'm, they're they're maybe not even having their regular periods yet because they just haven't been menstruating for very long. I mean, I I'm very open with them, and I encourage them to pay attention, um, and to know that it shouldn't be that, like, it shouldn't change your life and interrupt your life that much. Right. You should not be missing days and days of school. You should not be kept up all night, you know, sick with it. And actually several things that I've read in terms of, you know, like when you think of cramps, period cramps, they're not really, I mean, we don't really know what a normal period looks like. First of all, that's the the first problem here is that medical science doesn't actually know what a normal quote unquote period would be. Um, But what they do know is that in general, and I'm sure this is, like, rather, like, a correlation study rather than anything else, but generally speaking, period cramps sometimes start, like, the day before, but they should not be severe for more than, like, the first, like, maybe 48 hours you're bleeding. And if they persist that, it's pretty much always linked to some Mm -hmm. underlying condition. And I don't think... Oh, you mean you're not supposed to have cramps all month? Yeah, exactly. And you think about how we've, like, normalized, like, like period cramps, and like it has become in in so many ways, it becomes like whenever we talk about, uh, like in popular culture, if we talk about periods, it it always is like the butt of a joke almost, mm-hmm. almost always. I mean, and I think that you know, I like I wrote a piece about like what if female characters menstruated because I would love to see you know strong female characters on television like Olivia Benson from SVU, you know. Have I just have to take a half day from work because her cramps are yeah, too bad. Yeah. Or, or like have her like, you know, whip her purse out and be like diva cup ahoy. Like, I mean, I just feel like, you know, or even just like bleed on something. Yeah, which, I, this is another thing. I feel like that's always, like, a, this mythical embarrassing moment that's a, it's like a plot device for young I girls. literally, like, when I
0: think about it, I get a little bit dizzy and, like, my heart races because I'm like, oh, God, because it's happened so many times. Absolutely, yeah. It's and so then, embarrassing.
1: And it gets depicted in, like, literature and, and film as being, like, you know, this, the ultimate, like, female embarrassment. But for a lot of women, it happens really consistently. Yeah. I mean, I, every time I have a period, I bleed in or on something. Thing that I shouldn't, you know, and it's been like that my whole life. Yeah. And, you know, you try to you try to like circumvent that. Like, I mean, I've gotten to the point now where um I very often get like I go online and order like my free samples of like depends because I'm just like, hey, I'm gonna try anything I can.
0: Yeah. I have to say I've been using the Thanks period panties for two months now, like two and a half months, because I had some mid-cycle bleeding uh the first time that I wore them and they're the best.
1: Yeah. They are the
0: best. Um, you definitely bleed much more than I do, but it, they might be like a good backup. Like, yeah. it, to use it in conjunction with something else. Um, they're amazing and they make me never want to use a tampon or a pad again, and I love them so much. Right?
1: I mean, also, I'm just thinking about like my graveyard of like period designated <laughs> panties that are so beyond help. Like, yeah. I mean, it almost yeah, totally. I feel like it would be a great, um, alternative to having your, your drawer of, of disposable, like basically let's be real, basically disposable period panties. I mean, that's just like part of, that's been part of my life, Yeah. but having like a designated pair. And I've actually heard a lot of people recently and maybe it's just because I'm more attuned to it or maybe people are actually just talking about like the concept of free bleeding more.
0: Love it. Want to do it always forever. (laughs) Uh, there, Oh God, what's her name? I can't, just not doing names today. Um but there is that woman that ran the London marathon yeah. free bleeding and I was like fuck yes
1: and everyone was so upset about it. I know. That was I was so shocked by how like disgusted people were. Like I mean I know that people like culturally we have this like period stigma. I'm yeah. aware of it. But I was not prepared for like the backlash that yeah. she got. Like I was like it didn't even involve me and I was like offended for her. Yeah. Like <laughs> I was like really?
0: And to hear her talk about it she was like I wasn't supposed to get my period. And I did. And I was training for this marathon and they say like, don't do anything during the marathon that you haven't done when you're training. And I hadn't worn a tampon when I was training or anything. So I just decided to let it roll. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, thank you forever. Keep
1: doing that ladies. That is. And I think, you know, I always, you know, get the, I'm sure a lot of doctors you know are always like oh yeah like you know physical exercise on your period will make everything better and i'm like like every yeah like every every attempt i've made to be physically active ever regardless (laughs) of being on my period has become increasingly more difficult but then you think about like the stigma around like you know how everybody says, oh you can't swim on your period and you can't do these things on your period and like okay let's make it let's not only make it more difficult to do this physically let's just make it like so that there are all these social conventions mm-hmm. that discourage women from participating in certain activities. In life. Basically. In life. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, like, I mean, I guess we might as well all just, like, go to our, like, secret period house yeah. for, like, a week and never leave. right red because, Yeah. Exactly. I'm actually reading that right now. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it baffles me because this is, on some level, a like paradigm around menstruation that we've internalized culturally to the yeah. point where maybe we don't do that anymore, but I think we symbolically ostracize women.
0: Well, I was talking to somebody about this at a party the other night. Cause I'm fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, she brought up the concept of the red tent as being, you know, something that's very barbaric and terrible. And like, yes, it is that, you know, women would be banished from society while menstruating. But on the other hand, in in a in a culture where you have something like the red 10 that means that they acknowledge that women get their periods, and there is a social construct around having your period, A. And B, just a big lady party. Like, That's who
1: doesn't weird. want to hang out and complain about cramps? That, that to me, is, like, the best. Actually, yeah. In a way, you could extrapolate this and be like, okay, so our, you know, live-tweet-your-period hashtag yeah. is kind of like that metaphorical... Digital red. Tent. Yeah, it's like our digital red tent to be in a space that is um, intentional mm-hmm. and... And in supportive. I mean even if outside of that area is is a, like oppressive of your your menstrual nature, within it, it, you know, you have the freedom to just do it and to just talk about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think about you know how much of a woman's life is spent in that phase of her menstrual cycle and you know, it it, it can be very even now it can be very isolating. And I think we we teach girls um to be ashamed of it and to not, and to make sure that it doesn't impose on other people's lives. Like the Mm -hmm. whole idea that, like, I mean, even now I do this, if I'm walking, you know, somewhere with my friend and I'm on my period, I'll be like, can you like do a booty check to make sure I'm not (laughs) bleeding through? And it's, and and I think about it and I go, was I taught this to protect myself or was I taught this to protect people around me from having to have like secondhand embarrassment about my like bloody pants? Like, and I think that we do do it for other people. It's not really about (laughs)
0: And I just think of how, like how many hours, yeah, that I've spent in my life feeling paranoid and freaked out that I've like bled through and you can see it, which like has literally only happened probably twice in public for me. And like, I had like a long cardigan or something, like I had something to compensate for it. So it like wasn't even a big deal anyway. Um, Hilariously. I got my period two days before the, the patient awareness day. And then I was so exhausted at the end of the day that I passed out and fell asleep for 12 hours and, like, woke up in a pool of blood.
1: Yes. I was
0: like, oh, Dave. this this is appropriate. Um, and it made me think, oh, uh, you tweeted a picture one day uh, that was a still from Law & Order SBU of, a, like, a mattress with this, like, kind of, like, not that much blood. Not that much blood. Yeah. And they said, oh, a woman must have given birth here. And like, I, maybe I have an unrealistic expectation of how much blood there's supposed to be when you give birth. I would imagine it would be more than that. Yeah. And like, maybe some other weird colored fluids and stuff as yeah. well. Um, <laughs> but but you tweeted that like, I don't remember what you said I remember
1: that. Work. I do, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was... I mean you have to imagine this diet. it was maybe the diameter of a dinner plate yeah. in terms of blood and um I can assure you that that giving birth involves a lot more blood than that first of all but I was like I was like SVU come on like I bleed more on my sheets just having a period yeah then I do like, so they like that blood level is totally inaccurate for what you're trying to portray. And actually I don't even remember at the, at the end of the episode, if they did determine it was a birth, I think it was. And then I was like, man, that's even worse. Like it would have been better if it turned out to be like a stab wound. Right. And you were like, okay, that I can believe. But I mean, yeah, I think, f- I think a lot of women would see that and just kind of laugh at the inaccuracy of it because yeah. I mean, I know I bleed a hell of a lot more than that just on my period. And you know, I was just thinking, we were talking about the, about, you know, menstruation being visible in society. And isn't it funny that we have culturally stigmatized it, but in the course of human history, a like the, you know, visibly fertile women were like the point of women. You know what I mean? Like you, like if you had wide hips, if you had like lactating breasts, if you had like, you know, and we've immortalized that figure in art. Like I was in the Met the other day Mm -hmm. and like now given, I was mostly there to look look at pictures of women and dogs. It's really what I was there for, and I took pictures of, like, every... Which is, I mean, like, why else would you go to an art museum? Yeah, I mean, like, that's what I'm always there for. I'm like, show me them paintings, like, you know, where's my Rembrandt, like, you know, of, like, women and dog. Um, but I, I was thinking about how, you know, you you look at how women are portrayed that way, and how they're immortalized in sculpture or paintings um, as having that sort of, like, fertile body. Which I mean we could get into a whole nother podcast about like body image issues and and, and the whole idea of like the feminine the feminine like physique <laughs> as opposed to the mystique. Um and I just think it's so fascinating that when you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, wouldn't we want to show other people that we are menstruating because then it's like evolutionarily like, look how fertile I am. Come and me with your sperm. Like from an evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't make sense for us to stigmatize it. Maybe.
0: I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure.
1: Cause there's, I mean,
0: there's, there's a hygiene component in there somewhere that comes from you know, like, we didn't always have running water, and we didn't always have, like, I mean, in a lot of bathrooms, we still don't have some place to stick a bloody tampon, you know. Yeah. Um, so there, there, there is, like, a very real hygiene component there, but even still, we've gotten, you know, fert- fertility and and attraction, like, the wires on that are so crossed and, like, almost, like, Turned upside down at this point, yeah. to the fact that like women think that it's ex- and and certain c- plenty of men do expect that they're not going to have any body hair.
1: Yeah, what's with that, dude? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I
0: like, I have so much to say. As, <laughs> as like as somebody with Irish skin and Italian hair, I have so much to say about that. <laughs> You're like, I have so I have so many feels. I have so too many, many like, feels. Like too many, too many for this podcast, but. Um, because that's another visible sign of,
1: yeah, sexual maturity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've, trust me, I've written plenty about like the, like the laurels of pubic hair and like how valuable it is. Mm -hmm. And, and we just seem to forget that or, or women just say, okay, yeah, deep down I know that this makes me more comfortable and that it has a purpose, but. I don't want to be unattractive to a male partner who doesn't want to see it. it. Yeah. So there's this whole like, you know, element of, of that, that, that comes into play. And I, and I have, I mean, not to say that I haven't fallen into that trap in my life with partners before. Of course I have. I think we've all been, we've all been there in the bathroom being like, I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to be shaving this way. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get, like, you know, a massive, infa- like, staph Ugh. infection See, from doing that's, this. That's the that is actually the reason that I stopped shaving. Because yeah. I have extremely sensitive skin. I have
0: curly hair that, like, grows back into itself. Yep. So I get ingrown hairs constantly if I shave. Yeah. And, like, I, I my body cannot handle constant infections. Like, yeah. it, that puts me at a risk of, like, Serious health problems and aggravating existing health problems.
1: And like, I mean, God, if I can just give a PSA to anybody with with pubic hair who wants, who thinks that they need to keep it totally manicured to the point of like prepubescent baldness, like the the ability, even for somebody who's healthy, like if you're immunocompromised, sure as fuck, don't be doing it. If you're not, even if you're a relatively healthy person, it's the perfect breeding ground for staph infections because it's and sexually transmitted infections. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Like certainly the obvious of like genital, genital, like touching and and infections that you get that way. Except for crabs. Except for crabs. Yeah. So, okay. So maybe you're not going to get that, but you know, like, (laughs) so there's one, (laughs) but like the whole, um, you know, that it's a warm, moist environment Mm -hmm. that is perfect to open. And if, so if you're, if you're not removing that hair in a way that is, like completely done right the hundred percent of the time and not too fast and you're not giving yourself all these open cuts like hell yeah you're gonna get infections and it's gonna be It's a real
0: bad place for an infection.
1: Yep. It's a real bad place for an itch, all right? <laughs> Let alone like anything else. Like, so
0: true, so true. Um how oh, fuck, what was I gonna say?
1: <laughs> I know right? <laughs> I know, where we go? how did we end up on pubes? Like and I love this. I love that we were just having this conversation and we got here. We arrived here. We did arrive. I feel like I always arrive at this point. Yeah. Well, I like to talk about things that women are taught that I feel like are not true. Like, well, actually just talking about the, um, the whole idea of like hygiene as it relates to menstruation.
0: I just remembered what I was going to say, which is how many fucking hours of your life have you wasted with your leg behind your head trying to like shave some strange place?
1: Yes, absolutely. And also like that has become, and I mean, part of the reason why I just completely gave up on it was, um, the limitations of my body when I got sick mm-hmm. and I started to have like pelvic adhesions or internal scar that made my ability to move my body in even basic ways Mm -hmm. very limited. And it finally got to the point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, look, I struggle enough. Like when I had shingles, like that whole time I had shingles, there was no shaving of anything, certainly not underarms. And that was purely just because of the excruciating pain involved Mm -hmm. in raising my arm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that like, there especially for people with like chronic fatigue or chronic pain this is a whole other element of yeah. of self care so not even just talking about the cultural stigma of those things that we associate with hygiene but also like what happens when you get to the point where you actually can't do these things mm-hmm um and you don't have the money or the time to go have somebody else like do it for you like you're not going to go get it waxed right. you know you're just like this is not something that's a priority or like me when you, when you try and wax something it literally peels your skin off yeah which is okay here we go another way to get staff like i mean this, <laughs> yes let's let's all collectively get staff like you know i think that it does become um like You know, like for me, it's always a decision maker. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and it's no longer like, I almost don't feel like I have the, have like the privilege to care about my appearance the way that I used to. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a chronic, chronic illness thing. I mean, I definitely, for my own self, I do try to put makeup on. I do, before I'm going to leave the house. Like I, and actually part of that is, is, it's definitely for me. Mm -hmm. Um, the way that I dress, it's definitely for me, um, But it's nowhere near with the fervor that it was when I wasn't sick. Yeah. You know?
0: And, like, listen, you want to shave your pubes, you want to get waxed, whatever. Do your thing. But do it for you. Like, do it because you want it. Don't do it because some fuckboy is telling you that he won't have sex with you. Because guess what?
1: Big red flag, you don't need him anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like, these are all things that should be about, like, your self-care. And actually, you know, if you... Like, I actually, for a while... Um, used to really look forward to shaving my legs in the mm-hmm. shower because it was like a very zen thing for me. I've never looked forward to shaving. <laughs> it's like the worst <laughs> the worst thing in the world. Right. Well, this was this was many moons ago. Yeah. But I mean like if you, you know, if it's something that becomes part of your self-care routine that yeah. you really like do for you, then like awesome. Like I like I'm so here for for like women doing their thing sure. for their own self-care or for their own empowerment. Uh, I mean that's why I actually really do like to um, put makeup on. And sometimes even, like, I make decisions around, you know, having my energy be used for that because I like doing it Mm -hmm. and it makes me feel good. But, you know, other days I don't. Like, today I'm not because I'm going to get on an airplane and, like, it's going to be nighttime. Nobody's going to see me anyway. (laughs) But, like, you know, I want my energy for other things. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of times, you know, you have to um, make those decisions Every, like every moment of every day, you know, it's a constant, like, where do I, like, I have my finite energy and where do mm-hmm. I want to put it? Or I have my finite, like, ability to be vertical. Yeah. <laughs> where do I, what do I want to do with it? And
0: that's something that most people can't even imagine that, that ma- energy management Like most people, don't even think about energy management, but that it could play such a huge role in your day. I probably spend more energy managing my energy than anything else, and it's it's not. I'm not mis. I'm not misallocating my energy in that way. If I don't do that, I'm I'm just fucking myself.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I actually it's so funny that you say that because that's exactly the sentiment that I've been and I've been like spending time like writing this to try to work it out in my head and that really is it because they talk a lot about managing your pain and managing your symptoms but this idea of energy management for people with um with with chronic illnesses is so important and i feel like that needs to be its own like field of study like oh, people sure. need to look into that and- well because we have like
0: we have no real solutions for it. It's like, okay, first try having better sleep hygiene. Second, maybe take some stimulants. Third, we're out of options. And, you know, I like every time somebody is going to do like a talk on on fatigue or something, I'm like, "Ooh, maybe there'll be
1: something something some new insight that they'll have," and yeah. they never do. Yeah. And also, we're still very much in a not even just a medical culture, but a like a broader Like social culture that is not really 100% sure if they believe that things like chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia um, exist, or that they could potentially exist independently from something else. I mean, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, those aren't really conditions or diseases in and of themselves. They're just like manifestations of something else. And I'm like, I just, you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't feel that way. I mean, I've met so many people who really have had such an intense quality of life change Um, and sometimes yeah it is sometimes it's been tipped off by um, say like they have Lyme or they get um, or or even like uh, post-infectious chronic fatigue
0: is definitely a thing where something happens with your immune system and you're fucked forever now
1: yeah and I feel like you know sometimes I wonder if stuff like that if we just change the name if it would legitimize it for people like honestly I don't I don't
0: know. I don't think so. I mean, I follow the saga of chronic fatigue syndrome slash myalgic encephalomyelitis pretty closely because I feel that, like, if they studied that better and got better insights into that, it might help us better understand chronic fatigue in other settings. Um, But uh, that's... uh, not uh, not going so well. There was this big study published, I think it was last year, uh, called the PACE trial, where they studied uh, graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy in ME patients and concluded that those were effective treatments for chronic fatigue syndrome slash myalgic encephalomyelitis. However, uh patient advocates and a lot of experts are really pushing for the people who conducted the study to publish their actual data because it seems that it was collected in a questionable manner and that the conclusions that were drawn are rather questionable because a lot of ME patients find that, and I find this as well, that, you know, if I exert myself too much, I can have a permanent setback from that. Mm -hmm. I've tried graded exercise therapy. I've tried cognitive behavioral therapy. Those might help manage some of the social fallout or, Mm -hmm. you know, the emotional aspect of this. But it does not address the condition itself. And, you know, acting like therapy and exercise is going to fix something as serious as Emmy, which some people die from. Yeah, Christ that's bananas. That's definitely, there's some fuckery there.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I was thinking too about this whole idea that, um, like, I I mean, I think a lot about how, I mean, because prior to when all of these conditions, um, came into my life, I was a dancer. So I was physically fit. I was active. Um, I was muscular and, and healthy. I mean, I had pretty decent cardiovascular health and, and, you know, I think I was Probably the best level of fitness I'd been in my life. And I had not necessarily ever had issues with like what, you know, exercise intolerance per se. But after I got sick, it was such a, it wasn't just a matter, like a lot of people would say to me, oh, you're just out of shape you you know, you haven't done the, you know, you've been sick for a year. You've, you know, it was so different from that though. Cause I knew what it felt like to be out of shape because yeah. you know, you would get, you'd go through a period where you'd be on like a vacation or something, or you wouldn't be dancing as often. And you, you knew what it felt like to be mm-hmm. quote unquote out of shape. And what I experience now in terms of exercise intolerance or physical activity intolerance is it feels so different mm-hmm. from that. And I think that that is one of the problems is that that whole concept of a symptom being You know, intolerance to these varying levels of physical activity or trying to build up your, you know, strength, resistance or whatever. I mean, I think a lot of times it is passed off as being that, oh, well, if somebody's been bedridden for a long time or, you know, they're just out of shape. We just need to build them up.
0: Or my favorite, they're just lazy. Did you read that piece that Esme Wang published yesterday she wrote about uh,
1: oh I retweeted it I have I'm gonna save it for the plane but yes um, it's really
0: great and it really articulated so much of of like the daily battle that I have of like like is is this fatigue this gut-wrenching severely disabling fatigue and brain fog is this real or am I just lazy which after you know I mean I've definitely experienced it for about 20 years, but it's been especially bad since 2008. And then in 2013, after that procedure got, you know, worse than ever before and has never gotten better. Like, is this, I'm still struggling. Am I just lazy? And like objectively, intellectually, fucking no, that's ridiculous. That is absurd. I try so hard. And if I don't, I mean, I have, I have, hurt myself by trying to push myself and be somebody that I'm not and have energy that I don't. I mean, we were talking before about uh, me using, like attempting to use stimulants to Mm -hmm. function like a normal person. Day four, I am immobile. I cannot move because my body is awake but has no energy left.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, because it's a trick. You get
0: tricked into like, oh, I'm just a normal person. I can do normal person things. And then you do normal person things. And it and fuck you forever
1: yeah and it was and what exactly my one of my biggest struggles in my day-to-day life is just keep, keeping house doing yeah. dishes doing laundry um making my bed doing anything that requires making your bed like, i know what
0: like that is fuck that yes. <laughs> like not even on my radar is something that like I would ever do. I had to have my boyfriend help me like put on a fitted sheet the other day, which it turns out if you have somebody help you, it takes like 45 minutes less.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh my God. And I, here I am living alone. My dog doesn't have thumbs, so she can't help me. Not that I even feel like having thumbs helps anybody with a fitted sheet. Cause sure. that shit is, we need a better technology. You yeah, know, for sure. we got iPhone successes, but we don't have put a man on the moon. Yeah. we put a man on the moon, but we can't. Make a fitted sheet that isn't complicated. Um, <laughs> I know there's some people out there right now who are like fitted sheets are not complicated, but yeah, they fun. are. They trust me. I just that is just true to life. But um, and I've been doing this for so many years now that unless I stop to try to explain it to somebody, it, it's integrated into what my life is like now. But I I did when I first got sick have to be very um, methodical in my thinking, and I gave a lot of energy to thinking through the steps I would take and be like, all right, I'm going upstairs or I'm going to drive now. And hopefully I'm not going to twitch have like, have these like my clonic jerks where I'm like, you know, driving off the road. Like I'm very, very always hyper aware of my body. And now it's become just something I've in, in kind of incorporated into my life. And it makes me think like, I mean, I'm absolutely terrified to even bring it up to my doctor because a, I don't want to be judged for it and b, you know, I don't want her to assume that I'm trying to use it for intellectual reasons. Like, mm-hmm. and I feel like that if because yeah. a lot of people do, a lot of people use it for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, maybe they should or maybe they shouldn't. I don't know. I'm of the belief that any pharmaceutical um, absolutely behaves differently in each individual, and it, you can't make blanket statements about its effectiveness like its effectiveness and like one person you know, but I was so i I admit I was afraid of the stigma involved in that and I think I think also deep down I am afraid of drugs like amphetamines where I potentially would develop a tolerance and not be able to um you know be be satisfied to just exist like a normal person again because the thing was is that before I got sick, I was definitely. I guess what you would call type a very high achiever like I was constantly competing with myself um and so getting sick was first of all grieving the loss of just my normal level of functioning but also the grief of realizing that I would never like accomplish or have the life I wanted just due to physical limitations would just be so depressing to realize that I would basically be like killing myself trying to do it because I'd need it forever. It'd be impossible to not have it because the minute that I didn't have it, my body would be so worn out and exhausted and in pain because I would just be abusing it to try to have a normal life. I mean, there's got to be a better solution. I just don't know what it is. No, I don't think we found it yet. <laughs> I'm really glad we got to chat about this. Um, it's been really great, and I think that, you know, these are conversations that definitely don't stop here. Like, they deserve to continue on, and, you know, hopefully people will join in on all of our period talk. Hell yeah.
0: I love this. I love talking about periods. Any excuse, I'll use it. Um, okay, cool. Thanks for listening to InSickness and in Health. Find resources and more from us at InSicknesspod.com and on social media at InSicknesspod. Check out Ask Me About My Uterus on Medium, and if you haven't, take a listen to Abby's first episode of the podcast, episode sixteen. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.